We've seen how Revelation 11 described events leading up to the blowing of the seventh trumpet in verse 15 at mid-tribulation, especially the death and resurrection of the two witnesses. The seventh trumpet initiates the great tribulation. At this point, the believers in Israel escape to a place of safety in Jordan. That's in Revelation 12. Meanwhile, Revelation 13 shows Antichrist quickly establishing his world dictatorship, which lasts for the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, enforcing his control with the mark of the beast. Now we go to Revelation 14, as the time of the seventh trumpet is beginning. God gives seven visions, revealing the final outcome of different groups of people in the time of this trumpet. The first vision in Revelation 14:1-5 is of the 144,000 in heaven. They're described as being redeemed from the earth as a first fruits to God. I believe this signifies they were raptured at mid-tribulation at the same time that the two witnesses were resurrected. Having fulfilled their ministry along with the two witnesses of spearheading the soul harvest, God receives them into heaven as the first fruits of the tribulation harvest. Perhaps this event can be seen in the catching up to the throne of the man-child who comes forth from Israel in Revelation 12:5. This explains the basis by which the prophecy jumps from Christ's first coming to the end times. The connecting link is the catching up of a man-child. So, verse 5 describes the catching up of Christ and the catching up of the 144,000 Jewish men in Christ at mid-tribulation. That same day, the seventh trumpet is blown and the woman flees into the wilderness, exactly as verse 6 describes. Thus, this explains the continuity of the prophecy. The second vision in Revelation 14, 6 and 7 reveals the special preaching of the gospel early in the Great Tribulation by an angel, now that the 144,000 are in heaven. This reflects the very special conditions prevailing, because until this point, God has ordained the gospel to be preached by men. Through this angel, God will give a final call for men to turn to God and worship him before the mark of the beast comes into force, for if they take the mark, they'll be lost forever. The third vision in verse 8 reveals the final destiny of Antichrist's world empire and capital, called Babylon the Great. It'll be totally destroyed under the seventh bowl of wrath, just before the second coming, and Revelation 18 describes this in detail. The fourth vision, in verse 9 to 11, is the strongest warning that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will receive everlasting punishment in the lake of fire. The language makes it clear that they'll be conscious and that their torment or punishment will never end. It says, he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. The fifth vision, in verse 12 and 13, is to encourage the saints to persevere even unto death. For those who refuse the mark and die in the Lord will enter into eternal rest and reward. The sixth vision, in verse 14 to 16, shows Jesus reaping the harvest of the righteous at his return. He will resurrect the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs. He'll also separate the wheat from the tares, gathering in the living believers into his messianic kingdom, but putting the rest into fire. The seventh vision, in verse 17 to 20, shows grapes ripe for harvest being gathered and thrown into a winepress where they're trodden down and crushed to release their red juice. And this is a picture of the armies of the world being gathered to the land of Israel for Armageddon. They're ripe for judgment, so when Jesus returns, he'll trample them underfoot and their blood will flow like grape juice.
So the great winepress of God's wrath is the land of Israel. It says that there'll be a path of blood that passes Jerusalem that will be 200 miles long, which is the exact distance from Megiddo in the north, where the armies initially gather, to Bozrah or Petra in Jordan, where the remnant of Israel are hiding. Thus, the armies spread out from Megiddo to Jerusalem and then to Bozrah in order to destroy all the Jews. But Jesus will return and crush them all underfoot. Now we go forward in time to the last few months of the tribulation. Revelation 15 is a short chapter announcing the seven bowls of wrath about to be poured out. They're also called seven plagues. They're like the ten plagues of Egypt. They represent the final judgments on Antichrist's kingdom before the Lord returns. In Revelation 16, we see these seven bowls being poured out in succession. The first bowl releases sores on the worshippers of the Antichrist. The second bowl turns all the seas to blood, killing all sea life. The third bowl turns all the fresh waters to blood. These judgments of blood are a fitting punishment because of the shedding of all the blood of the martyrs. The fourth bowl releases scorching heat from the sun. The fifth bowl releases extreme pain and sores on the kingdom of Antichrist and especially its capital, as well as covering it in darkness. The sixth bowl, in verse 12 to 16, sets the stage for the Battle of Armageddon. Actually, battle's the wrong word. It's the word for an extended military campaign or war taking place over weeks or months. First, the Euphrates is dried up, opening the way for big land armies to come from the east. And then the satanic trinity releases demons from their mouths, persuading all the nations to gather together against Israel. Verse 13 to 16 says, I saw coming out of the mouths of the dragon, and of the mouth of the beast, and of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs, for their spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And they gathered them together to, a, to the place, which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. Antichrist will gather all the armies of the world to Megiddo, a strategic hill overlooking a large valley in the north of Israel, also called the Jezreel Valley, a perfect place for the gathering of large armies. And then these armies will go throughout the land. So this is the build-up for the War of Armageddon, the prelude to the return of Christ. Satan's aim is to destroy Israel and so prevent Jesus from returning and setting up his kingdom. For he knows God cannot fulfill his promises apart from Israel. Also, since Satan knows Jesus will return to Israel, he gathers all his forces there in a vain attempt to stop him return. For Revelation 19.19 says that the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The seventh bowl, in verse 17 to 21, results in the greatest ever earthquake and the total destruction of Antichrist's capital city, Babylon, along with his other cities. Revelation 18 gives a full description of the fall of Babylon the Great. We now review the order of events in the War of Armageddon. First, we've seen Antichrist gathers his armies to Armageddon, but actually it's God that's calling them to Israel in order to judge them there. Joel 3, 9-11 is the call to gather for Armageddon. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. This results in Israel's prayer for the heavenly armies to come down to save Israel in verse 11. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. 
This prayer will be answered when the Lord returns with his armies to crush these armies like grapes underfoot. Joel 3.13 says, Come, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, the valley of judgment, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Second, these armies move south toward Jerusalem and Judah. Joel 2, verse 1 to 10, gives a graphic description of this seemingly invincible army as they march south. Zechariah 12, 1 to 9, describes all the nations coming against Jerusalem, pointing out that whenever they mess with his city, he will mess with them. Verse 2 and 3 says, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it'll also be against Judah. And that's the remnants of Israel hiding in Jordan. It'll come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Then, in verse 4 to 8, God helps Israel to fight against the invaders. This attack on Jerusalem is the last straw. And so in verse 9, God promises to personally come and destroy them all. It says, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. 3. The Antichrist armies will also go to Jordan to destroy the remnant who's fled there. We'll later see a number of prophecies that say this is in the region of Bosra in Edom, southern Jordan. The famous Petra used to be the capital city of this region, which is a large area shaped just like a sheepfold, enclosed by high cliffs with a narrow entrance. Bosra literally means sheepfold, so the sheepfold of Petra provided the name for its surrounding region, Bosra. Micah 2.12 tells us that God will gather his people in the sheepfold of Bosra, that is, in Petra. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I'll put them together like the sheep of the fold, literally the sheep of Bosra, like a flock in the midst of their pasture, and they'll make a loud noise because of so many people. Fourth, Jerusalem finally falls. Zechariah 14.2 says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. It'll seem hopeless, but this is the signal for Christ to return. As verse 3 says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. In Matthew 24.22, Jesus said Israel, the elect nation, would face annihilation if he didn't return to save her. Fifth, but before Jesus can return, one thing is needful the national repentance of Israel for her rejection of Christ. This is the basis for his second coming. He can only return if Israel receive him as their Messiah King and welcome him, calling on him to save them, as he said in Matthew 23:39, You, you leaders of Israel, will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Therefore, while Israel and Jerusalem are under attack, facing annihilation at Armageddon, there must be a national repentance happening at the same time. And that's exactly what Zechariah 12 describes. We saw verse 1 to 8 describe the siege against Jerusalem. And verse 9 shows the Lord's readiness to return to savor. But it is what is happening in their hearts at this time that's the key to the whole situation. Zechariah 12.10 says, I, I God, will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as for one who mourns for his only son. 
This describes the look of faith when Israel sees Jesus as the Messiah and look to him for salvation. It should be translated, they will look unto me whom they have pierced. God is speaking and saying that they had pierced him, but God is spirit. He can't be pierced. So this means God must have taken on human flesh in the person of the Messiah and been pierced through. Throughout the tribulation, there'll be a growing realization among the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And now, under the pressure of Armageddon, her very existence is at stake. And now God pours out his spirit of revelation and repentance on Israel so that they can see that Jesus is the God-man Messiah who was crucified for them. And also through the spirit of grace and supplication, they realize they can receive his salvation through calling on him in faith. The following verses in verse 11 to 14 describe their mourning, emphasizing that it's a genuine, deep national repentance from the leadership down. Then Zechariah 13 verse 1 describes the cleansing that results from this. In that day, a fountain, the fountain of Messiah's blood, shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. At this point, all Israel are cleansed from their sin and are saved. Zechariah 13, 7-9 point out that although two-thirds of Israel will die in the tribulation, the remaining third will all be saved. This national repentance and salvation of Israel prepares the way for the second coming, which we'll see described in Zechariah 14. Joel 2 also has the same pattern. First, an overwhelming invasion bringing destruction. Second, a call to national repentance. And third, Followed, this is followed by the Lord returning in power to destroy the enemy and restore Israel. Hosea 5, verse 14 to 6, verse 3, reveals what the leaders of Israel will say at this time, to call the nation to repentance. The background is the national rejection of Christ. Verse 14, I, Messiah, will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. See, he came as her king to Israel, but was rejected, so instead he judges them. I will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, to heaven, until they acknowledge their offense, until Israel repents of rejecting him. Then they'll seek my face. In their affliction, in the tribulation, they'll earnestly seek me. So the Messiah announces here that he'll go to heaven until Israel repent of rejecting him as king. He says in the tribulation they'll repent, and he promises that when they do, he'll return to them. In response to this promise, Israel's leaders will now be calling the nation to repent using these very words in Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he's torn, he's judged us, but he'll heal us. He's stricken, but he will bind us up. He'll restore us again. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up, that we may live in his sight. His going forth from heaven in the second coming is established as the morning, as the sunrise. Psalm 80 also gives their prayer at this time. Of particular interest is verse 17, where they call on God to release an exalted man at his right hand to return to save them. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Now that Israel's national salvation has taken place, the stage is now set for the Lord's return, which will take place after two days. So we will now follow the sequence of events that will take place immediately before his return. Six, point six, the seventh bowl is poured out and Babylon the Great is destroyed. And that's Revelation 18. 
Point seven. There will now be signs in the heavens. In Joel 2, after describing Israel's national repentance when under the threat of extinction, in verse 12 to 17, God promises to restore her fully in the millennium, and that's in verse 18 to 29. Then he describes the Lord's return to save them in response to her calling on the name of the Lord. The day of his return is called the great and awesome day of the Lord, meaning the day of his manifestation in glory. Then verse 31 and 32 says, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Notice that before his glorious return there will be two signs in the heavens, a blood moon and a dark sun. When we studied Daniel's 70 weeks, we saw how this was initially fulfilled on the day of the cross, two days before the great and awesome day of Christ's resurrection. Now, at the end of the rerun 70th week, two days before the second coming, there'll be the same two signs. First, a total lunar eclipse, then a total blackout of all lights in the universe, not just of the sun this time, but the moon and stars also. The blood moon will signify that now all Israel is under the blood of Christ, so the stage is now set for Christ's return. Then soon after, there'll be a total blackout, which will stop the armies of Antichrist in their tracks. The sun turned to darkness, the cutting off of God's light, signifies impending judgment. He's about to put out the lights of the wicked. All the lights being turned off signifies that as the divine judge is about to make his physical entrance into this universe, every knee must bow before him. Thus this supernatural darkness announces that the judge is about to appear in all his glory, and you, like these stars, will have to bow to his glory. As every star will fail to shine, so no flesh will be allowed to boast before him. Imagine a majestic, powerful king about to make his entrance. No one dare speak, act or move. Nothing must be allowed to display itself. A great silence heralds his appearance, for all eyes must be on him, and nothing must be allowed to distract from his glorious entrance. Likewise, every light will be covered, so that in that day only the glory of Christ will be seen. For 24 hours, the only light will be from his glory, which will light up the world. Revelation 6.12 also records these two signs. But there was a great earthquake, that was the big one at the fall of Babylon, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Man's response is to say in verse 16, Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Isaiah 13.9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation, and he'll exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil. So immediately before the Lord returns in glory, God will end the tribulation with a blackout. Point eight, the next thing that happens is the shout of the king of kings as his army is about to attack. Isaiah 13 continues in verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. It's the Lord's roar from heaven, his battle cry, which shakes the universe. Joel 3.15 says, The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. 
In Joel 2, the description of the Antichrist armies ends in the first part of verse 10, which says, Before them the earthquakes. But then the noise from the heavenly army takes over. It says, The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord indeed is great and very awesome, and who can endure before it? Jesus summarized these prophecies in Matthew 24:29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Point nine. Then the glory of Christ appears in the sky, the sign of the Son of Man. You see, when an invading army comes, the first thing you see is their shining banners of victory shining in the distance. Likewise, men will first see Christ's banner before he himself appears in power and glory. After describing the blackout, Jesus said in Matthew 24:30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The appearance of his glory will be all the more dramatic because of the total blackout. Point 10. Now, finally, Jesus appears in his glory. As Mark 13:26 says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Revelation 1:7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So why does Jesus return? First... It's to save Israel, the elect, from destruction. Second, he comes to judge the earth and remove all evildoers from the earth. Psalm 96:13. He's coming. He's come for he's coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Jude 14, Behold, the Lord will come with myriads of his saints to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they've done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God and to, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Third, he comes to destroy all of man's godless kingdoms and to establish his kingdom of righteousness on the earth. Daniel 2 reveals a statue representing four Gentile world powers that are given dominion over Israel. First, the head of gold is Babylon. Second, the breast and arms of silver is Medo-Persia. Third, the belly and thighs of brass is Greece. Fourth, the two legs of iron well, the classic view is that this is Rome, which divided it into western and eastern parts. A modern view is that it's the Islamic Ottoman Empire, where Islam is divided between the Shias and the Sunnis. From these legs come feet and ten toes of iron and clay, which represent the end-time ten-kingdom confederacy over which Antichrist rules. This is either a, a revived Roman Empire or a revived Islamic Caliphate. Fifth, then a stone struck the feet and destroyed the statue. The stone then became a great mountain that fills the earth. Christ is the stone who at his second coming will destroy Antichrist's kingdom and put an end forever to man's kingdoms. He then becomes a mountain which is his millennial kingdom and rule over the whole earth. The army that returns with Jesus includes his angels. 
Matthew 16:27 says the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. It also includes all his resurrected saints, which means the whole church, his bride, will be with him. Zechariah 14:5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. In Revelation 19, verse 7 on, we see Christ with his bride in heaven just before the second coming. She's dressed in fine white linen, described as the righteous acts of the saints. So these are resurrected saints who've stood before the judgment seat and been clothed in glory according to their works. Moreover, the marriage has happened, as she's now called his wife. Then we see in verse 14, the army following Jesus on white horses is clothed in the same fine white linen. Clearly, that's us, the bride. Then Jesus goes forth to destroy the armies of the Antichrist by himself, with his army behind him. It seems like Jesus does all the fighting. Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16 says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he's got a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 17:14 says, These ten kings and the beast will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He kills the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. That lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Revelation 19.21 says, And the rest of the Antichrist armies were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. The sword here was the longest and heaviest Roman broadsword, a weapon of mass destruction. It was shaped like a tongue. Only the strongest could use it by holding it with both hands and swinging it to and fro and so mowing down anyone who got in the way. This way, one man could kill hundreds. The sword coming out of Jesus' mouth will work the same way. As he flies over the armies on his horse, by speaking his word of power, he instantly strikes down all the armies. The first place Jesus goes is to Petra in Bosra to save his people there. This is where he starts to systematically destroy the armies of the Antichrist. Jeremiah 49:22, Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Bosra, the sheepfold, where his sheep have penned up. Once he has flown over all the enemy armies, spread over 200 miles from Petra to Megiddo, turning them into a river of blood, he'll triumphantly set his feet down on the Mount of Olives.